0: Yesterday, the aim was to encourage you to risk for the cause of Christ and, and not just to do it yourself, but to preach and lead and live in such a way that your people become a community of risk-takers, a, a kind of people where taking risks is normal. And that's as big a challenge as doing it yourself. And uh, not everybody understands how you awaken the people to be like that. And I want to just say one more comment on that as a transition because today the focus is on encouraging you to persevere or to endure or to last in hard places and hard situations. But first, um, a word about how do you lead a people into being the kind of, of people who take risks? I, I think if you don't have a theology that is something like Christian hedonism, something like that, you don't have to like that phrase, then you, you might start hammering on your people to take risks. In other words, you, you will get the the cart before the horse because... According to Jesus, he says things like, Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice in that day and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Now, if they do not believe that, great is your reward in heaven. They won't rejoice when they're persecuted. And therefore, they won't take risks. That's First Peter. That's what we've been hearing. This future, this future flowing back into the present, you've, you've got a life coming, you've got a security coming, you've got a heaven coming, you've got a, a, va- a vacation coming. You don't need it now. There's way too much over realized eschatology in the church. Heaven now, you don't need heaven now. You need to get engaged with hell now. Live on the doorstep of the devil now. Get blood on your face now. The now is suffering. The now is risk. The then is absolutely secure. So what do you preach? You preach the glory of the then. And you tell stories from the Bible and from history about the people who've been so gripped by the coming glory, they've said, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. His truth abideth still. Let's go. So the only way, I think, that you can engage a church to be like that is to, be in, uh, to paint picture after picture after picture of the irresistible glory that is coming. They've got to fall in love with it. Nobody is so heavenly-minded they are no earthly good. Nobody's too heavenly-minded. You can be too little engaged with the earth, but you can't be too heavenly-minded. So, go for broke in building a people who so love what's coming to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ that they hope fully in it and then can take risks and lay down their lives for others. Now today, I want to encourage you to endure. So if you just remember two two words from these two messages, last today or endure or persevere, whichever one you like, and yesterday, risk. And I have in mind these kinds of endurance. Enduring in the faith mainly. Staying a Christian. Talk about that more later if that sounds like I'm not a Calvinist hang on (laughs) you should pray to stay a Christian secondly to endure in the ministry of the word and I say it generally not the particular church where you are but don't let me just give up the whole ministry and go sell cars don't let me do that ever pray that way And third, that you stay where you are as long as God's called you there. That's hard to know that. I know. People come to me, they say, how can I know when I should move? And I never know what to say to that question. It's so hard. But I'm generally in the business of encouraging perseverance in hard places. I like people who last through hard times. I like Charles Simeon. And then I mean marriage. Marriage. Don't leave it. Don't change it. If it's hard, I love this picture. I encourage my people with it. They know, they know our marriage is an embattled marriage. They know Noelle and I are wired about as differently as you can get. They know that we spent 33 months in Christian counseling in the late 80s. They know everything about us. There's nothing hidden at our church. And I love to stand up and say... You know, one of the visions that I expect to have, God lets me live, and want to have is to be at a little restaurant on the north shore of Lake Superior, just above Duluth, with little bushes and little birds jumping around on them and and the expanse of the largest freshwater lake in the world, just a few feet away, at the age of about 78 or 79, looking across the table at my wizened wife (laughs) and looking into her eyes and smiling with tears running down my face and saying, we made it. I love you so much. We made it. Don't you want to say that? When you're 40, you feel like, I can't, just can't do this. Well, you can, and this sermon is to to help you dream a dream of perseverance and the sweetness that will be. You know, we live in a time when lasting is not a virtue. Enduring in your job, enduring in marriage, enduring in a church, enduring in a friendship, all of which are trouble. It's just not a virtue because we can change so easily. Change clothes, change wives, change churches, change jobs, change where you live. It, in, in the West, the, the people who built this church, they never dreamed about change. You know, It could be a blacksmith from the day they were born or whatever. You know what I'm talking about. We live in a day of incredible change, and I'm I'm just kind of swimming against the tide here, trying to encourage you that there's some glory and joy in sticking it out. So, the answer to the question of how you endure is sustaining grace. Persevering grace, if you like that old word. Enduring grace grace. And so what I'm going to do is define it, and then I'm going to give about three or four illustrations of it, and then I'm going to take you to a text in Jeremiah and unpack it in whatever whatever time we have left. So here's my definition, and I put it in a poem. It's a four-line rhyming poem. Sustaining grace. Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. I'll probably repeat that five more times in this message, and that's my definition of the grace that you may count on to enable you to endure in all those areas, not grace to bar what is not bliss but flight from nor flight from all distress but this the grace that orders our trouble and pain and then in the darkness is there to sustain that's what i count on and that's what has worked over the years so here's some some uh, illustrations of what I mean. Bob Ricker was the president of the Baptist General Conference for about 15 years. That's the little denomination that I'm a part of in the United States. And he came to our church to preach at the 125th anniversary of the church in 1996. And he told the story of his daughter about 10 years earlier, driving down the road as a teenager and having a terrible car accident and being thrown from the car and not breathing and turning blue on the side of the road. And a car came up behind and a doctor was in the car. And the doctor had in his pocket one of those emergency tracheotomy type deals. I don't quite understand them. And this doctor had the courage against all possible malpractice suits to actually stab her in the throat and saved her life. And then he said, a a year ago, I think a year or two ago, I did her wedding. And she was gorgeous with her wedding gown, except she had a big scar here. And he paused at one point in the marriage ceremony and he looked down at her and he said, that on your neck is a memorial of sustaining grace. Now, Bob Ricker is no fool. He knows that if God can arrange for a doctor to be driving behind his daughter, that he can arrange for this device to be in his pocket, that he can arrange for him to have the courage to use it and the skill to use it life-savingly, he could have prevented the accident. Easy. But sustaining grace is not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. Here's a, here's a, a funnier one. My wife was driving from Minneapolis to Atlanta. That's 1,000 miles, and she was one hour... This was 1996 also, and she had two sons and our baby daughter. Abraham was 16, Barnabas was 12, Talitha was one, and I was not with them. Uh, forget what I was doing, off doing something. So here... They are, and the car on a Saturday night uh, breaks down, it's the radiator, one hour south of Indianapolis, in Indiana, in the middle of nowhere. So no husband, 16-year-old, isn't driving, and, and a baby, and, and 12-year-old. And she pulls off the side of the road, it's Saturday. No, nothing's open on Sunday, and, and so here she is. What is she going to do? And a man pulls up behind her, happens to be a farmer, and he says, she says to him, you know, I, I don't know what's wrong. There's no water pressure or anything. It's overheating, and we'll have to have a motel and see if we can find a place Monday morning to, to get it fixed. And he said, well, you could stay at our house if you'd like, my wife and I. Now, that puts my wife in a really awkward position, right? Go with a man. Mm. My kids, so so uh, he could tell she was hesitant. And so he said, you know, the Lord says that when we do something to somebody else, it's like doing it to him, which gave her some hope. And, <laughs> and she said, well, could we go to church with you tomorrow morning? I'm going to test And he said, can you stand a Baptist church? <laughs> Not knowing, he's talking to a Baptist pastor's wife. And so they agreed. So they pile into his car and, uh, and head to his farm. Now, it turns out this man's a retired aviation mechanic, he drives early Monday morning to Indianapolis and gets a new radiator and puts it in with his own hands before noon. And they're on their way and they go to church together and the icing on the cake my 12-year-old son Barnabas is the only fisherman of all my four sons pulls his fishing rod out of the car on the farm finds a pond throws it in, and catches a 19-inch catfish. Made his summer. This was the best detour we've ever (laughs) had. And, of course, if God can arrange for there to be a farmer who's a retired mechanic, who is generous, who's a a Baptist... (laughs) who has a a pond with a 19-inch catfish arranged to bite onto a 12-year-old's worm, he could have spared the radiator. Just a piece of cake. There's just not the least difficulty of, of God sparing my wife that trouble. But sustaining grace is not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain and then in the darkness is there to sustain. One more, then we go to the text. Sometimes it's good to put your stories at the front, but we won't talk about homiletics, we'll just do it. Um, This one's not funny. In our church, there was a summer in which there seemed to be an epidemic of babies born with profound disabilities, four of them. It just shocked the church. One baby born with no eyes, no eyes in his eye sockets. One baby born with 40% of his brain and so on. And one of those dads who's gloriously engaged in the work now uh, and, and not bitter at God at all, he said to me, you know, John, it would, it would have been easier had Jesus not healed so many people. But had just gone around helping people cope. And I said, you know, that is what he did often. And the clearest example is 2 Corinthians 12, where he gave Paul a thorn in the flesh, and Paul cries out, Please take it away, it hurts, please take it away, it hurts. Please take it away. It hurts. And he hears, no, no, no. And then he says, my grace is sufficient. That's what I told him. you got to be patient with people when they had a baby with no eyes. You've got to give them a lot of space to, to be okay with that. And he is. If he's autistic as well, boot. we now find. And he's in our nursery, cho- he's in our youth ministries, 10 now. And the whole church wants to make a place for Paul. And so I say, in one word or another, over and over again to our people: sustaining grace is what you need to last in marriage with a child with a profound disability that will change the rest of your life. You will always be serving this child until one of you dies. You didn't bank on it. You didn't count on it. It's not what you planned for, and it's changed absolutely everything in your life. Because sustaining grace is not grace to bar what is not bliss nor flight from all distress, but this... The grace that orders your trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. Would you open your Bibles to Jeremiah 32? Let's read verses 36 to 41. This is the text I choose to illustrate sustaining grace, persevering grace, keeping grace. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, that's Jerusalem, of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation, I will bring them back to this place and I will, make with them, I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. So the first thing we see is that the people are in uh, captivity. Verse 36 Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city, this whole city, of which you say, and they're right in this, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. That's true. God did give it into the hand of the king of Babylon. That's a true statement, but it's not the last word. God will get the last word, verse 37... Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them. Grace does not bar what is not bliss. I drove you there in my anger, my wrath, and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and will make them dwell in safety. So God declares, He did it. I have driven them there. Sovereign grace is going to triumph, sustaining grace is going to triumph, but it did not keep the captivity from happening. Now, the really personal question I have when it comes to watching God work with Israel in the Old Testament. Is to wonder whether we can individually say, God will always bring me back. If He sells me into captivity of some season of suffering or even doubt, can I say, He'll always bring me back? How how can I be sure? As a reformed lover of sovereign grace, I love to ask skeptical people about those doctrines of grace. So what makes you think you're going to wake up and be a believer tomorrow morning? What what is your assurance that you're going to wake up and trust Jesus in the morning? You think, left to yourself, you would? You think willpower will do it? Do you ever sing, "O oh to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be"? Let thy goodness like a fetter. What's another word for fetter? Chain. Let. Your goodness like a chain bind my wandering heart to Thee. Do you ever pray that, Arminian? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Red hot molten lead that cannot be broken Seal it. This is all prayer. Prayers like this all over Psalm 119. Incline me to you. Keep me. Save me. Preserve me. Pastor, do you pray this regularly? Keep me in this ministry. I've prayed it a hundred times. Don't let me quit. Please don't let me quit. Don't let one of those dark moments be the last moment. Please do whatever you have to do to get me through those moments. There will be light on the other side, but I feel like quitting. Don't let me quit. You pray like that, pleading with God to hold on to you. Wake you up a believer. Wake you up loving Jesus in the morning. You don't, you don't make yourself love Jesus That's a work of God, a work of grace. So I pray, keep me, preserve me, defeat every rising rebellion, overcome every niggling doubt, deliver from every destructive temptation. Oh, this pornography issue. Killing pastors all over the place. Killing their souls, if not their ministry. And eventually it will be their ministry. How subtle it is. How many ways you can get there without going there. Oh, set yourself up. I will gouge out my eye. I will cut off my hand. God, do it. Do whatever you have to do. Strike me blind rather than let me compromise my soul. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. I want to see you. Please make me pure. Keep me pure from pornography and many other such keeping, preserving, holding prayers. Do you pray that way? Do you cry out day and night, keep me, help me to last, help me to persevere in the faith, in the purity, in the church, in the work? Yes, we should. We should pray that way. And uh, I never have, never have understood people who... Translate Reformed theology into prayerlessness or evangelizationlessness. Never, ever, ever have I had the least emotional resonance with those kinds of arguments at all. It all works the other way to me. The only reason to pray for my son when he was away was that God could save him. He can't save himself, he's blind as a bat, but God can save him. I can't keep myself a Christian. I can't stay pure. God can do it. That's why we pray. We cry to Him. Act on behalf of Your name and spare me from making shipwreck of the ministry in Your name. So plead with Him for it. And now here's the ground of your confidence. Let's read verses 38 to 41. I'll make four brief points. And they shall be my people. I'm answering my question that I raised about five minutes ago. Can, can I personally take this text and get confidence that I'll stay a Christian and come back from my Babylonian wanderings? Here's my, my, my hermeneutic here. I, I don't know if I need to say this in a group of pastors, but I will anyway. My hermeneutic for saying yes to that is that this is clearly new covenant promise. hope there's no argument there. This is new covenant promises. And Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Therefore, Jesus, by his blood, bought those promises for all who are in him. Those are the true Israel, And these promises are valid because of the blood of Jesus who said, my blood is the foundation and purchase of the new covenant. So when you read a a new covenant promise, in fact, I think when you read any promise in the Old Testament, if you're in the seed of Abraham, if you're in the Messiah, it's yours. And there's good hermeneutical warrant for embracing those. And this is one of the best. Let's read it. Verses 38 to 41. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Now here are my four points from that set of verses. Number one, God promises in the new covenant to be your God if you belong to Jesus. If you cleave to the one who bought these promises... God promises to be your God, verse 38. They will be my people, and I will be their God. I take that to mean that God will use all of his godness, his wisdom, his power, his love, to see to it that you remain his. He will use everything he is as God to see to it that you remain his. When he says to a person, I will be your God, that's the fullest meaning in Christ, I believe. Number two, God promises to change our hearts and give us love and fear for him. He promises to change the hearts of his people, to give them a love and fear for him. Verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. Verse 40, second half of the verse. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. That means God will not simply stand by to watch what will become of your faith. He won't simply stand by to watch whether you become a believer and stay a believer. The new covenant people are different from those under the Mosaic covenant who did not keep the covenant. That's the difference between the old and the new. In the new, God moves in power to save and to keep his own. And so we may have strong confidence that he will do it. I I believe sustaining grace is sovereign grace. It is irresistible grace. By which I do not mean you can't resist it. I mean, anytime he pleases, he can overcome your resistance. So when Stephen says to the Israelites, you resist God all day long, that's not a contradiction of irresistible grace. Anytime he pleases, he can do a Damascus road. Of course, Paul resisted him. Decades, he hated him, resisted him. God chose him in his mother's womb, he says in Galatia. He was his all along, elect. And God let him go a murderous way. And then, when he decided, resistance is over. I'm coming through. Of course, God can overcome your resistance. And he did. If you're a Christian, he overcame your resistance. The grace that I need in the ministry, more than any other grace, is sovereign resistance overcoming, wandering, seeking, returning back from Babylon, bringing grace. I and mean, it's there; it's promised. Number three: God promises that He will not turn away from us, and He won't let us. Turn away from him. I remember growing up in a fairly non reformed atmosphere where I would try, not knowing what I believed in those days, to quote John ten twenty nine. No one can pluck them out of my hand. And they'd always say, But you can jump out. I didn't know what to say. Now I know what to say. He won't let you jump out. If you're his, it's what it says. It's so clear. Verse 40, I will make an everlasting covenant with them and I will not turn away from them. Okay, everybody agrees with that. To do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. This is the part they don't agree with. So that they will not turn away from me. That's my only reason for thinking I'm going to wake up a Christian tomorrow morning. It is not the consistency of John Piper's will that guarantees my waking up a believer in the morning. This sentence, I will not let you turn away from me, is why I wake up believing tomorrow morning. And you, whether you know it or not, isn't it wonderful? Praise God. He saves people with bad theology. Praise God, he keeps people who don't believe he's doing it. I'm so thankful for that little sentence in, in uh, Packer's book, uh, Keep in Step with the Spirit, where he said, God loves to honor the needle of truth in a haystack of error. That's so helpful when dealing with mixed up people. Well, don't be mixed up anymore. Love this. Enjoy this he will not let you turn away from him. The the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and then the perseverance in marriage and the perseverance through sickness and the perseverance in ministry is a a doctrine that's rooted in the sovereign keeping of God. It means that my, my, you know, everybody in America who's a Christian believes in eternal security, just about, that's not, that's an overstatement. But a lot of people who don't like anything else about Reformed theology love that one. But they don't understand. They think it's automatic. They think you pray a prayer, or you sign a card, or you walk forward, and now you can quote to them. You're saved. You're safe. You've got eternal life, eternal life. You can't lose it. And they don't understand it's only because God has moved on you and keeps moving on you day by day, and you should be praying for this and relying on this and exalting in this and praising him for this, that he does that new new covenant promise for you every day. That's number three. Finally, this is the best of all. God promises to do this, this keeping, staying with you and keeping you with him. God promises to do this with the greatest intensity of desire imaginable. Verse 41, And I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Now at the front of the verse, 41, he says he loves doing what he's doing in keeping you. I rejoice to do you good. You need to let your imagination work here because your capacity for joy is very small. You're a human being you need to somehow extrapolate what it would be like for infinite power to be happy. (laughs) It will make you tremble. I mean, he might create a universe. What would you do? How would you celebrate if you were God? Clap and two, 10,000 universes come into being. Oops, did you not mean for us to be? Sorry, we go back out of existence. We thought you meant for us to come into existence. But the best, the best part, the best part is at the end where I don't know what more he could have said. I not only rejoice to do you good, I rejoice to be sustaining and helping for you. I do it with all my heart and with all my soul. Now, I want to give you a non- rhetorical, flourish, non-sermonic challenge. I challenge you. Can you, I don't think you can, can you conceive, even conceive, of a intensity of desire greater than the desire expressed in all God's heart and all God's soul. Raise your hand. Come to me afterwards if you're embarrassed and tell me what intensity of desire would be greater than all the omnipotent heart and all the omnipotent soul. Not a piece of it and not your heart, but God's omnipotent soul and God's omnipotent mind and heart. All of it. Holy, engaged in rejoicing to do you good. That's got to be one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. I thought of, how can I, how can I press this? And I thought of this analogy. If you took all the desire for food, all the, de- the desire for sex all the desire for money, all the desire for fame, all the desire for power, all the desire for meaning, all the desire for friends, all the desire for security in all the hearts of all human beings. And put it in a container, six billion of them, a lifetime of desire for all of those things, put it in a container, how to it compare to this desire? With all my heart and with all my soul, I rejoice over you to do you good. It would compare like a thimble to the Pacific Ocean. And that's an understatement. Infinitely. We must feel this. He didn't write these words for them to be thrown away. He meant for pastors to be absolutely blown away that God Almighty on His throne, maker of heaven and earth, as we heard from Dick, is rejoicing over you to do you good with all of His heart and with all of His soul, all of the time. He never sleeps and never slumbers. We need to believe that and not just think it. We need to pray, oh God, Open my eyes, change my heart, help me to feel the wonder of this, and then have words and a life that will create a people so satisfied in it, in you, for them, with that amount of energy that they live so radically. The world simply has to ask, What's the reason for the hope in you? You're going to live differently you believe that you will not become a health wealth and prosperity person you will let goods and kindred go you won't need it heaven's around the corner it is coming so fast not grace to bar what is not bliss nor flight from all distress that's not what grace is in this life but grace that orders our diseases, our conflicts, our marriages, our teenagers. And then, in the darkness, is there with omnipotent energy to delight to do us good. Let's pray. Oh God words 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 come holy spirit and open our hearts when we sing be thou my vision my treasure my life i pray that there would something would happen in every heart in this room that the confession and the prayer that you be our vision would have an effect on us that would help us to last and help us to risk. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.